Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Then as he that is Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying I am he. And will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Mark's gospel was written primarily for Gentile readers, for Roman citizens and Roman people in a Roman empire. Mark 13 is an abbreviated version of what has been called the Olivet Discourse, which is spoken of at length in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. So if you want to look at the long version of this, it's going to be in Matthew 24 and 25, and we're going to allude to it. Opposition and persecution for Christians were frequent, and many were tempted to compromise their witness for Jesus or give up altogether. When this particular gospel was written, I'm going to suggest to you it may have been written as early as 64 A.D. or 65 or 66, just a few years before the destruction of the coming um, the, the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the, the people, the Christians were living under constant threat. Chapter 13 brings into sharp focus the issues of the last days and then describes the first part in verses five through 13 and then the middle part in verses 14 through 18 and the last part of what the Bible teaches about what's called the great tribulation. It's also been called the time of Jacob's sorrow, which will literally lead up to the real coming of Jesus Christ, who will return physically, bodily, undeniably to the planet. If you've ever been curious about the signs or the events leading up to what might be called the final curtain the closing of what has been called the church age, then this particular passage of scripture in Matthew's gospel will outline the times of the Lord's return in part. Remember, literally in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it says we cannot know the hour or the day. As a matter of fact, in, in Mark chapter 13, if you just go down a little bit in the chapter to verse 32, it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour, but we do since the season, just like we've just finished summer and now it is fall. We sense the season has changed because the leaves are turning colors and they're beginning to fall from the branches. And we sense that it's a new time and a new season. Mark's gospel gives us hints of what to look for. As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel reads less like a prophecy conference and more like a guide for suffering saints. Jesus warns his disciples, don't be deceived in verses one through eight. Don't be afraid in verses nine through 13. Don't be ignorant in verses 14 through 27. And it's been my 
experience that when Jesus says, don't be deceived, it's because there's the possibility of deception. Don't be afraid because people are filled with fear. Don't be ignorant because people don't know what's going on. So Jesus says, don't be careless in verses 28 through 37. And tragically, a lot of so-called Bible teachers and prophecy teachers, they twist the information in the Bible and it becomes misinformation. We as Christians are not to be guided by fear. We're not to be guided by ignorance. We're invited to know and to watch and to pray. And so in this chapter, Jesus will speak of two prophecies and two parables. The first prophecy will concern The temple in verses one through two. The second prophecy will describe the events that will lead up to what has been called the great tribulation that's talked about in Daniel chapter nine in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And then Jesus will present two parables, which I call super signs. The first is the fig tree in verses 28 through 31. And then he will give yet another parable, a parable that's been called the parable of the alert servants in verses 32 through 37. So it begins the servant and the signs that lead up to the end. Look at verse one. Then as he went out of the temple, that is, Jesus left the temple. One of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. Herod's temple was magnificent. Even today, the remnant of the retaining wall and what has been called the rabbi's tunnel features a block, a stone that is 45 feet by 11 feet that weighs in excess of 510 tons. The temple was an architectural and engineering marvel that that rivaled some of the greatest monuments in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, that stone that you see, 45 feet by 11 feet, weighed some 510 tons. To give you an idea, I don't normally like you to look behind you, but if you look at the exit where our church is in the sanctuary, and you see the first set of doors and the second set of doors and the third set of doors, Imagine a block of solid limestone about the same size as that little ante room right there. And you get an idea of just how big the stones were. And Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple area. And as they're leaving the temple area, Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. Now, I want you to put yourself in the circumstances of the text. It is Tuesday. Jesus has been answering the questions that we've looked at in chapter 12. Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. He'll never go back. At least. Before his death and resurrection, he'll go back to Jerusalem. But in the next few short days, he will be arrested and he will die a cruel death and he will come back to life. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, because some Bible teachers have suggested that even in this rejection of the temple, as he went out of the temple, he's leaving it for the last time. He's also leaving everything that it stands for, because you see, the temple was the place where Jews went to know God, to meet God, to offer the sacrifices to God, to experience God. And tragically, that's a way a lot of people feel about religion. They go to church in the hopes that this is the place where they'll meet God, where they'll sense God, where they'll sense his presence. But the reality, the reality is that Jesus is the person. That's how we know God. That's how we meet God. That's how we experience God. It is in the person of Jesus that we experience grace and forgiveness and mercy. So look what it says in verse two. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now you've got to understand just how much this statement would have taken their breath away. What catastrophe could you envision for all the stones to literally be taken apart? Now, again, you have to understand some of the majesty of this particular building. Josephus gives a detailed description of the temple in book 15 between pages 334 and 336. He talks about how... Herod pleaded with the people before dismantling the old temple. Now, you've got to understand, when Ezra and Nehemiah returned from the Babylonian captivity and they came to the Temple Mount and they began to sweep away the debris and they began to build this temple, the temple was just laughable compared to Solomon's temple. And according to Josephus, Herod begged the people that he could reinforce the temple. He promised to pay for the temple and he was a wealthy man and that he had received favor for the Romans, that the Romans were even in fact um, willing to allow the building of the temple. He purchased a thousand sacerdotal robes for the priests. He ordered a thousand wagons to transport stones. He hired 10,000 skilled craftsmen to work bringing stones for the building. And Josephus says that it took them working day and night, eight years. And the temple itself was built in about a year and six months. Between 20 B.C. and 19 B.C. And Josephus describes that instead of leveling what was called Mount Moriah or or uh, the, the Temple Mount area, Josephus describes how how Herod built a platform of these gigantic stones and and literally built a flat surface over the top of it so that he could put this magnificent temple on the top. And Josephus describes the stones 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. And so the idea of destroying this would have seemed utterly impossible, preposterous. It would be like if I could somehow... Bring all of you to New York on September 10th, 2001. It's a, it's a, a, a 15 acre plateau. And imagine I pointed out the Twin Towers in New York to you. And I said, by this time tomorrow, in a matter of minutes, both of these towers will be gone. And you said, that's ridiculous. You're, how insane is that? What are you talking about? What catastrophe? What crises? What wickedness would have to happen for this to happen, for these towers to come tumbling down? And that's part of the challenge. You see, a great argument has been laid out by Bible teachers for years and years, whether Mark's gospel was written before or after the destruction of the temple. But there's strong, strong evidence that Mark received the information from Peter. And again, it would look like between 64 and 66. But part of the challenge that you have to understand was when this book was written, that means that the destruction of the temple was only a few short, precious years away. So Jesus speaks of the inevitable destruction followed by international disorder. And by the way, prophecy falls into two categories, fulfilled and unfulfilled. And the destruction of the temple would take place. The fifth and the sixth armies of of legions of Rome would park on one side of Jerusalem. The tenth and twelfth legions would park on the Mount of Olives. And in 70 A.D., they would assault the, the, the temple precinct mound over a period of 18 months. They would build a retaining platform and they would storm the walls. And because this temple was already a thousand years old and the rebuilt temple by Herod was already 90 years old. They pleaded that the temple would be spared because it it was one of the wonders of the world. But in the stoa to the left where you see which was the marketplace, there was some precincts right behind it and they caught on fire. And according to Josephus, somebody threw um, 
They, they threw a, 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 a lighted torch in the, in, inside of the temple and the curtain which divided the holy from the holies literally caught on fire and the raging heat caused the walls to begin to melt. The gold would, would literally began to melt and it permeated the rocks and the stones so that when the Roman armies finally were able to breach it, they literally removed the stones one by one so that they could get at the precious gold. And so, Jesus says, the stones are going to be thrown down. In part, I think we get the idea of, you're preoccupied with something that's not going to survive, it's going to come to an end. There seems to be something inside us of us that wants to focus on the shadow and not on the substance. We want to focus on religion and we don't want to focus on relationship. And so Jesus breaks the shocking news of the absolute destruction of this particular place. And in verse three, look what it says now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. We are looking at the view that he would have seen. You see, the Mount of Olives or Mount Zion, or the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah from the Mount of Olives, you look west and you see the temple complex. You would have seen the Stoa to the left. You would have seen the magnificent temple to the right. You would have seen the Antonine Fortress to the right. It says in verse 4, or verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus. Peter, James, John, Andrew. And they ask almost like for a private briefing. Verse 4, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, there's several fascinating things that I want to bring to your attention. First of all, four of the twelve apostles seek further information about the fulfillment of prophecy. Tell us. When will these things be? Now, what things are they talking about? They're talking about the biblical prophecies concerning the fulfillment of the identity and the mission and the destiny and the fulfillment of of Messiah's kingdom. Just think about it for a moment. Jesus sits down. Did they pause? Are they looking at the nine gates which would have compromised the wall? Overlaid with gold and silver. There's beautiful Corinthian columns overlaid with brass. There's graceful towering porches. There's beveled blocks of marble. It is breathtaking. When will these things take place? What things? Messiah's kingdom. Even the tearing down of this temple. Jesus answering them began to say... Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, think about the answer. The answer that Jesus seems to, to give indicates that he doesn't want his followers to be caught off guard. He, he doesn't want them oblivious to the coming catastrophe. They need to prepare. They need to be ready for the coming storm. And so doesn't it also make sense to you that the same truth applies today? We have good reason to believe that the series of circumstances are coming together, leading to a final moment, a final curtain that is and so here's part of the question who is wise the person who remains awake when it's time to watch we live in a world where people seem to want to fall asleep but Jesus says there's a time to sleep and there's a time to watch and by the way, there are principles that every believer in every age would do well to embrace Jesus says take heed Pay attention. Be warned in verse 5. Be warned in verse 9. Be warned in verse 23. Be warned in verse 33. Don't be troubled, it says in verse 7. Endure, it says in verse 13. Pray your guts out in verse 18 and verse 33. Watch verse 33. Watch verse 35. Watch 30, verse 37. Doesn't it make sense to you that if Jesus says, I, I need to warn you, don't be troubled. I need you to endure. Pray and watch. Why does Jesus issue the warning? 
Take heed that no one deceives you. Apparently, it's really easy to deceive and mislead people. Apparently, even the Christians are at risk of being misled and following false teachers. And Jesus is having this conversation with Peter, James, John, Andrew. But I think it's going to be meant for every Christian in every generation. The word deceives translates a Greek verb. Planadzo. You may not be familiar with that word, but there's another word that has found its way into our own vocabulary and into the English language. It's the word planet. You know that word because it refers to celestial objects that run a course. And so that's part of the point of and meaning of this particular word. In a sense, it it's the sense of I need you to stay the course. I need you to stay in the right direction. But in this context, when he says, take heed that no one deceives you, the implication is you might be going in the wrong direction. And so he's basically saying to you, I need you to stay on course. I need you to stay on track. I need you to go in the right direction. And so he gives that first sign of false messiahs and spiritual deception. Look what it says in verse six. For many, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. What? It's Tuesday. By Friday, he's going to be dead. By Sunday, he's going to be risen from the dead. And many will come in my name. How many would have come on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? So it doesn't mean the immediate future. It can't mean the next few days. It has to mean sometime after his death and resurrection. Now, again, I need you to think this through. Jesus warns that false messiahs will come. And the pages of church history are littered. With false prophets, false messiahs, with false messages and false credentials. And look what Jesus says. They will come in my name saying, I am he. And we don't even make it all the way through the book of Acts until false prophets are already showing up. In Acts chapter 5, verse 36, in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. So Jesus warns of the genesis of cults. That will build their ministry on false premises and the return of Jesus is something not physical, not literal. In the false prophet's view, in order for them to have a, some sort of satisfying explanation, they need to be the solution to problems. And so they'll literally deny the coming of Jesus. False prophets will emerge in the midst of a crisis. They will claim to be the Messiah. They will deceive many immediately in history. This will take place within two generations. There will be a revolt within four and five generations. Bar Kokhba will be assigned the title of Messiah and will deceive many more Jews. The false Messiah has to have a false message. And a false gospel and a false hope with a false future. And that's how you know it's a false messiah and a false prophet. They'll be wrong about Jesus. They'll be wrong about salvation. They'll be wrong about the Bible. And the warning is repeated, by the way, in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 5, don't be deceived. Verse 11, don't be deceived. Verse 24, don't be deceived. How can you explain that many admonitions unless there's a real problem? You know, people will often ask me, well, I don't get it. Why would the Holy Spirit allow so many people to be deceived? How is it possible that my family members, my mother, father, brother and sister found themselves involved with LDS, with the Mormon church, with Jehovah's Witnesses? How can how could this happen? How can people fall into the trap of being confused about the identity of Jesus and the message of the gospel and the future hope? How is that even possible? Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says the time will come when they, that is professing Christians, the time will come when professing Christians won't endure sound doctrine. They will want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves 
teachers in accordance with their own desires who will turn away their ears from the truth and will embrace myths. The context in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul tells Timothy in verse 2, he says, preach the word. The preacher isn't supposed to preach his own ideas or the ideas of others. Preach, according to Kenneth Wiest, is a command that's supposed to be obeyed at once. He writes, quote, it's a sharp command, as in military language. The preacher must present not book reviews, not politics, not economics, not theories of science, but the word. The preacher, as a herald, cannot choose his message. He's given a message that's been given to him by the sovereign king. If he will not proclaim that, let him step down from his exalted position. There are preachers who are willing to talk about anything other than the Bible. Other than the gospel. Other than the truth. Why preach the word? Because the great apostasy is coming, the falling away. The Bible teaches that the coming of Jesus will be preceded by a worldwide apostasy. What does that mean? The word apostasy means falling away. And it isn't just a falling away, but the implication, it's a, it's a re- departure from, a retreat from the truth. The word apostasy carries the idea of a willful, deliberate, determined defection from the truth. Judas, who's made his way just a little bit ahead of Peter, James, and John, he will defect. He'll get it into his idea that something is terribly wrong. That this whole messianic thing and this whole messianic kingdom has gone terribly wrong. And motivated by greed, he will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 25. And then he'll wind up feeling sorry for himself and he will go and he will hang himself. Hymenaeus and Alexander the coppersmith seem to experience some sort of shipwreck in their faith, apparently engaged in some kind of blasphemy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Demas turns away from the gospel, turns away from hope, turns away from grace. The apostle Paul apparently says that he loves this world more than he loves Jesus. And so people will be distracted, discouraged, filled with doubt. And they won't want to hear the gospel. People, even the you know, moms and dads and brothers and sisters, friends. Where do you go to church? Calvary Chapel. Why? He teaches the Bible. <laughs> Not at our church they don't teach the Bible. What do they teach? Prosperity. They teach a message of self-fulfillment or self-image. What is it? What is it? What is it that people hate sound doctrine? Sound doctrine means wholesome and healthy. Why would they turn from something that's wholesome and healthy? Because they don't want to hear the truth. What truth? The whole truth that the Bible teaches that human beings are sinners in need of a savior. And people go, this is why I hate Calvary. And this is why I don't like Gino in particular. Because when I go there, I feel bad. But that's not the whole message. It isn't just pointing out that you're a sinner. It's pointing out that there's a provision for sin. There's grace and mercy and hope. There's forgiveness and joy. There's the reality that the guilt can become something different. Exoneration. Freedom. Joy. Forgiveness. Hope. Most people despise hearing that they're sinners in need of a savior. That there's got to be more than one way to heaven. People despise hearing that Jesus is the only Savior, the only Redeemer, the only Mediator. And the first thing out of their mouth is, well, tell me about the people in the jungle who have never heard about Jesus. And I'm more than happy to answer your question. But I'm a little bit discouraged by the question. Because you're trying to find yet one more reason not to believe the truth. 
God in his character is holy and the Lord is righteous and perfect. And the reality is we need a substitute and God will provide the substitute himself, the savior. Imagine a criminal who goes before a judge and is completely pardoned and then invited to go home and live with the judge. That's what's happened to you. Not only have you been declared not guilty, not only have you been pardoned, but an an invitation has been extended to you to go and live with the king of glory forever and ever. And so who are the enemies of the truth? False gospels, false doctrines, false miracles, false gods, false Christ, false spirits, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers. Now, you would think. You would think no one would be so foolish. No one would be so bold. No one would no one would really pretend to be the second coming of Jesus. Right. I mean, that couldn't happen. But in the 1990s, Syracuse University estimated that there were 2,000 practicing gurus and false teachers who claimed to be Christ. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if someone was stupid enough to actually pretend to be Jesus, no one would be stupid enough to follow him, right? Well... James, Connie, let's put up our list. If this guy said, I'm Jesus, what would you say? Would you go, "Mm, I don't think so. Because you have a scary looking beard. No, that's that's not the point. The, the, The point would be this. That guy, you may not know him, but this is Wayne Bent. He's also known, let me see if I can find my notes. I just seem to have absolutely misplaced. Oh, yeah. This guy is also known as Michael Trevisare of the Lord Our Righteousness Church, also known as the Strong City Cultists in New Mexico. He was convicted December 15, 2008, of one count of criminal sexual conduct with a minor, two counts of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. You know what he said? That he's the Messiah, that he's God in the flesh. And that according to the Bible, he gets to sleep with the virgins. And the virgins happen to be other people's wives and other people's children. And see, you would think, well, I don't think so. Let's look at the next guy. Do you know who this is? Marshall Applewhite. I know you're looking at the eyes and you're going, you're not going to be. If this guy said to you, hi, I'm God. And he said to you, I am in contact with supernatural beings from other dimensions and extraterrestrials have contacted me and that there's a ship just on the other side of the planet. And we are going to meet that ship. And here's how you get there. You drink a certain kind of poison and you leave your body and we will in an interdimensional way make contact. But that's exactly what Marshall Applewhite told his followers. As a matter of fact, you might think, well, no one would be really stupid enough to really believe this guy, right? But when the San Diego Sheriff's Department came upon the house, they found bloated bodies and bunk beds because the decomposition had already set in, including a relative of someone who was a regular person on the Star Trek Enterprise show. And the list could go on and on. Henry Cristo. If you look at this guy, you would think, mm, I don't think so. Um, he is in Brazil. He claims to be the second coming of Christ. There's another guy named Matayoshi Jesus or Jesus in 1997, he established the World Economic Community Party based on his conviction that he is God and Christ. There is another guy, Jose Luis Jesus Miranda. He um, in September 
2006, he presides over a worldwide movement that he believes that he is God, that he's the second coming of Jesus. And from South Florida, Miranda leads followers, mostly Hispanic, in a different gospel. It's the freedom to indulge because he teaches that there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as the devil. There is no hell to pay. And his church is called Creciendo en Gracia or Growing in Grace Ministry. And the list could go on and on. I mean, it, it, up here we have uh, Jim Jones. Everybody knows him from 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 Guyana and the People's Temple. David Koresh. David Koresh, of course, is the leader of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas. He believed that he was the lamb in the book of Revelation, chapter five, that he received revelations from God and how to interpret the seven scrolls that that he was the one who was going to open the scrolls. The list goes on. There's a guy named Arafin Mohammed, Laszlo Toth, Tom. Thomas Harrison Provenzano, Sergei Torop, there's Sun Young Moon who recently died. He calls himself the True Parents Organization. This man, again, didn't so much claim to be God as that he claimed to be God's spokesperson for the here and the now. And you're thinking, this is crazy talk. This doesn't really happen. But it really does happen. Jesus said they're going to come and they're going to have a false view of salvation. They're going to have a false view of the future. They're going to have a false view of me. And look what else Jesus says in verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. Many years ago, the Canadian Army Journal included an article written by the former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences in cooperation with historians from England and Egypt and Germany and India. And they collated a a massive amount of information. The article related that since 3600 B.C., the world has known only 292 years of peace. During this period, there have been 14,531 wars, large and small, in which 3,640,000,000 people have been killed. The value of the destruction would pay for a golden belt around the world, 156 kilometers, that's 97 miles wide, 10 meters, that's 33 feet thick. There's not, if you took all of the gold that exists in the world, it would all fit comfortably in our center aisle, in our sanctuary. Since 650 B.C., there have been 1,656 arm races, of which 16 have not ended in war. The remainder caused the collapse of the participating economies of the nations involved. In verse 8, it says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus points out that the simple presence of wars and international conflict isn't what simply signals the end. We find the answer in part in verse 8 with the clue that's given where he says, these are the beginnings of sorrows. That what we're looking for is frequency and intensity. Peace is the most elusive thing in the world. No wonder the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there will really not be a lasting peace peace until the Prince of Peace comes in terms of sheer loss of life. World War Two from 1939 to 1945, including battle deaths and civilian deaths of all countries all over the world. Fifty four million eight hundred thousand human beings died, including twenty five million in the former Soviet Union. Seven point eight million Chinese, six million Poles. Now, you've got to understand the gross depiction of what's happening six per that's six million poles that's 22 percent of the population that means two out of every 10 people who lived in the country died when i was very young john f kennedy said in a speech mankind must put an end to war a war will put an end to mankind they're sobering words but they're not true War won't put an end to mankind because God has a plan. God has a future. Now, I want you to think about this, though, because since 1945, 
Human beings entered into an age within one generation where every single human being on the planet could come to a sudden and abrupt halt. In the 1960s, when I was growing up, military strategists and scientists called this overkill and total overkill. In the late 50s and early 60s, we would see films and there would be exercises where a sound would come on and we would hide under our desks as if a nuclear explosion could somehow save that if we're hiding under the desk that somehow we're going to be okay. But the concept of total overkill meant that America and all of its enemies have the capacity to kill every man, woman and child, not once, not twice, but three times. But note the words of caution of even Jesus. But but the end is not yet. Just a couple of things. When Jesus says the end is not yet, Jesus clearly believes in a terminus. There will come a time when the books are closed and the curtain is lifted and the last generation will exist. Many of the catastrophes that Jesus predicts at the beginning of this particular passage, within 40 years, the temple is going to be completely annihilated. And over one million Jews are going to be killed. My friend Joel Rosenberg asks the question, is America headed for a moral implosion in his latest book? He calls the reader to understand that unless there is a spiritual awakening that takes place, we're in big trouble. Robert Jeffers asked the same question in his book, Twilight's Last Gleaming. And both suggest that America will continue to weaken or experience an unprecedented spiritual revival. A recent survey suggests that at present, four out of five adults, that's 83%, say they are concerned about the moral condition of the United States. Does a nuclear detonation signal the end? Will the world's dependence on oil make peace an impossibility? Will Israel stop Iran? Will Iran detonate a nuclear bomb? Will even the detonation of a nuclear device signal the end? Well, ask the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the bomb went off in 1945. Did it signal an end for the people living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? But there has been a slow journey forward to what will really happen. Jesus gives yet another sign. Look in verse 8 at the end. He says there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There will be trouble. These are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus speaks of signs of nature. By the way, a very famous Bible teacher, Vincent, notes earthquakes in Crete. Now think about this. Jesus makes this prediction. There's a massive earthquake in Crete in AD 46 or 47, in Rome in AD 51, in Apamea in Phrygia in AD 60, in Campania in AD 63. Within a generation, Laodicea will be completely destroyed by a devastating earthquake. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius will erupt and will bury Pompey in hot red ash and famines will continue to kill Hundreds of thousands of people in the Roman Empire in both the near and the far future famines would plague the Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius. There would be four famines between 41 and 47. One of them mentioned in the Bible in Acts chapter 11, verse 28 in Rome in AD 51. People would literally die by the thousands and millions more would die in India in 650 A.D., in England in 1005, in Mexico in 1051, in Egypt in 1064. And then famine would sweep the world on a regular basis every 50 years. The World Health Organization estimates that a third of everyone on the planet right now is well fed and one third are underfed and one third are starving to death. Four million people die each year of starvation and 70 percent of those are children under the age of six who are undernourished or malnourished. Thirty people die of starvation every 60 seconds. 
The world has some scary weather ahead. There's something a little bit difficult. Weather watchers observed that between October 1991 and November 2004, a period of 13 years, the United States experienced nine of the ten largest insurance natural disasters in history. Nine of the ten greatest disasters ranked by the Federal Emergency Management Agency in terms of relief costs. Five of the most destructive hurricanes in history. And these statistics don't even include Katrina. Three of the four largest tornado swarms in recorded history. So clearly all of these signs have occurred throughout history. But Jesus says. This is just the beginning. This isn't even the middle. The word translated sorrows, by the way, is the Greek word odinon. It can be translated. Birth pains. Or contractions. If you're a mother who's ever given birth, if you're a husband who has a wife who's ever given birth, you understand something, that there's a series of events that take place. Usually the woman's water will break. Then there will be this sense in which frequency and intensity of pain will come. The frequency and the intensity, it will come suddenly. It will build gradually. There will be a time of sorrow and pain, but the sorrow and pain will be replaced by joy when the baby comes. But what Jesus describes is sudden, frequent, intense, but instead of joy, And instead of a child, there is disaster after disaster after disaster. What are the pains? Deceptions, false messiahs, false prophets, and their enthusiastic but deluded disciples. Seducers, deceivers, pretenders, making claims, making false promises, failing miserably, wars, disturbances, upheavals, assaults, killing, attacking, hoarding, World disturbance. And here's what Jesus says. But the end is not yet. So what can we expect? Well. Persecution. And then evangelism. And then more persecution. And more evangelism. And then Jesus will point to a super sign. An appearance of an antichrist. By the way, in the chapter, Jesus will exhort us to watch and prepare and watch and preach. Why? Watch and prepare because the temple is going to be destroyed. Watch and preach because political conflict and international disorder is going to take place. Watch and prevail because there's going to seem like inescapable difficulties. Watch and perceive. The idea is listen, listen, listen to what Jesus has to say. And then he says, watch and decide. That is pray. And in the next few weeks, Jesus will include persecution by Civil and religious authorities in verse 9. Worldwide evangelism in verse 10. A supernatural witness in verse 11. Divided families in verses 12 and 13. The abomination which makes desolate which we will have to explore in its entirety in order to understand Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24 and 25. And then a warning for Jews to flee. To run for their life in verses 14 through 18. Unparalleled affliction. It's called the time of Jacob's sorrow. Tribulation in verse 19. A time so terrible. So unbelievably bad. So incredibly difficult that God himself will have to intervene in order to prevent the extinction of humanity in verse 20. And then a search A frantic search for solutions among human saviors and human messiahs in verses 21 and 22. And then a time so terrifying, so unbelievably terrifying, that it required a prophecy from Jesus himself in verse 23. Read it for yourself. (gasps) Take heed. See. I've told you all these things ahead of time. I think that there are four main reasons that people ignore the prophecies surrounding the coming of Jesus. I think the major guilty culprits are unbelief, ignorance, fear, 
carnality. Because of unbelief, people just pretend like the Bible isn't saying what it's saying. And so they don't really want to know. And they literally occupy themselves with fear and carnality. I saw a t-shirt. Look what it says. Jesus is coming. Look busy. No. N-O. N-O. Jesus is coming. Yes. Yes. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming because Jesus, the fact that Jesus is coming ensures that his promises are true. It, it, It includes glory for Jesus, defeat for Satan, refreshment for the earth, Peace for the nation, blessing and restoration for the Jews because they're going to be forgiven and reconciled to the Messiah and blessing for the church. Look busy. You know, if you want to remain in unbelief, in ignorance, in fear, in carnality, buy the t-shirt. But if you really, really, really want to make a difference in the lives of men and women, if you want to participate in God's plans and purposes for the future, don't allow yourself to be deceived. Don't allow yourself to be afraid. Refuse to be ignorant. Don't be careless. Watch and pray. And this is just the beginning. There's going to be a whole lot more. I have to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've given us information that we can trust, that we can rely on. Lord, it seems crazy to us that people would believe and embrace pretenders, imposters, deceivers. Lord, you would think that the crazy eyes and the Kool-Aid would (laughs) cause people to wake up. But Lord, we know that there are people who, for whatever reason, they're willing to believe almost anything other than the truth about Jesus. That God's willing to forgive our sin and give us eternal life. That we can experience hope and joy and peace and a forever future with Jesus. But for many people, it just seems so strange. So far away. But Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes and that you would open up our hearts. That we could see the truth about Jesus. And his invitation to forgive us. And restore us. That Lord, we never ever have to settle for religion. But that we can have a relationship. Based on truth. And experience joy in Jesus. Jesus' name. Amen.